stationary bike. <laughs> That's where I like to ride. Uh, good evening, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. <clears throat> and uh, this may be uh, our last message on prayer and, uh, and to wrap up the Lord's Prayer and this doctrine that we've been doing for quite a while. I was going to review it all, but I think uh, reviews uh, bore people. <laughs> so uh, we'll, of course, touch upon as we go through the scriptures and the, the coming coming up. We're going to go through the New Testament as a whole, and uh, we'll be touching upon all these principles again and again. Um, so as we uh, continue to look at temptation, which is what the last petition in the Lord's Prayer is about. Uh, let's uh, prepare ourselves to uh, hear God's word if necessary, to get ourselves humble and ready and reverent before God and uh, to, um, to really appreciate and be ready to learn. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to be before you and read your word, and to have you communicate to us the truth. We know, Father, that the truth only comes through your scripture, and that you have covered all things, and all things that we need to know, and there is more than we could possibly imagine. And so as we, can, as we return to the same principles, we learn more and more and we desire to learn more, Father, so that we can uh, walk with you, be with you, see you every day. Uh, to have that life that you've promised us, a mature life that is of abundance and of joy and of strength. And that, Father, as we'll see, as you've taught us, comes through weakness, which is truly upside down to the way of the world. And so we are tempted by that world, and that's what we're looking at, Father. We ask that through your Spirit that you would teach us more so how to resist and say no to the temptations that seek to draw us away from you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, uh, there's a, One of my favorite shows that's done on the History Channel is the show Alone. Uh, in fact, the first few, the last season was season nine. I only know that because I looked it up. Uh, and uh, the first few seasons were done actually up here in the northwest, but far mu- much, a little bit more north than what we are in Oregon on, in, uh, on Vancouver Island. Uh, <clears throat> and so, uh, it, which was a perfect place for this show because, you know, what they do is they take ten, con- ten contestants who are survivalists, and each one gets to have ten items that they can take with them, ten survival items. Everybody takes a tarp and like an axe and uh, you know various other things, a bow and arrow. Uh, you can't take a gun. That's like one of the things. You get. <laughs> There's some things that are off the list, which would, would help you immensely in hunting. But uh, anyway, and... The, the winner of this show is the one who survives the longest. So, uh, and 
but each of the ten contestants are isolated. That's why it's called alone. So each one is alone, isolated, miles away from the next contestant, wherever they are. So they never come into contact with each other. So part of the survival situation is being alone. Um, and the environment's harsh. Vancouver Island is, as I said, much more north of us. It starts to get cold pretty quick. They don't drop them off there in the summer. They drop them off in the fall. And as they survive, it gets colder and colder. And as winter comes, uh, food gets more scarce. In this last season, it was called Alone Frozen. That was the name of the, the title of it. And they dropped them off in North Labrador, up in uh, eastern Canada, and this was a very, very harsh environment. Um, the winter of this last season lasted 78 days. And it's pretty much the worst. We've watched every season of this. And it was the worst I've ever seen in terms of food gathering. It was the sparsest amount of food uh, that these people could get. And, uh, and so what they do is, if you, you, so here's my point to all of this. <laughs> is that each one of them has a satellite phone and all you got to do is hit a button on that satellite phone and the producers send whatever, a helicopter or a boat and they come get you. So as you're cold, starving, lonely in your whatever shelter you built, all you have to do is hit the phone and you're out. And within hours you have food, warm bed, uh, you know, a, a sh hot shower, you know, and all it takes is the press of a button. Um, now, the reason why I mention that is because I fast forward, or actually I should say backtrack, to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was at his lowest and weakest place that he had ever been in his life. He had been tempted in many ways and in all ways, as the Scripture tells us. But in Gethsemane, he's at his lowest, his weakest. The pressure upon him was immense. Actually, more than immense. Incredible. To the point where, as we'll read it here, it caused angst. The Greek word says that it caused uh, a, an, an angst, uh, a pressure and agitation inside of him. And the reason being is because he knew, and nobody else did, besides him, no one else on earth knew, not his closest, not even John, knew that he was about to go through hell in just a few hours. And with a word, he could make it stop. We see when they come to arrest him, he just says, I am, and they all hit the deck. They all bow down. They bend the knee and bow to him. All he has to do is say a word and it's over. All he has to do is he said to Peter who pulled out his sword that I, I could call down uh, 12 legions of angels right now and end this. All, he's got a satellite phone. And he can just say to the Father, I want out. And it's over. Now, his strategy that prevented him from quote-unquote tapping out was prayer. He prayed three times. He prayed the same prayer, at least what is recorded for us that we know, and it's stated by the Gospel writers that he prayed the same thing three times. And he held on, and prayer got him through. 
And I think that's one of the best incentives in the Scripture for prayer. You know, it, it, it does prayer work? You know, and it, it depends, of course, on the situation, what we're praying for, but certainly it does because the Lord used it. He used it frequently. And, you know, no one had gone through what he went through. If prayer to the Father could get him through this, then prayer can get us through anything. However, it's not the Lord's praying that I'm drawing our attention to tonight. It's the three disciples that are with him. Peter, James, and John. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane with him. Gethsemane means olive press. It's a very appropriate name for what's going on in this garden. And Peter, James, and John called out from the other disciples. But this isn't the first time these three are called out from the others. When Jesus rose Jairus' daughter from the dead, the synagogue official, he called Peter, James, and John to go into the room with him. And they witnessed him uh, raise this girl from the dead, this little girl. And he told them, don't tell anybody. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, same three, Peter, James, and John. He calls them to the top. He transfigures before them. They witness this. And so in those times, Jesus was showing them something, showing them his glory and his power. His power to raise, his power over death, and actually his power over death again in the transfiguration where he showed himself in his resurrection body. But this time, in the Garden of Gethsemane, unlike the other instances, Jesus was not just, actually, he wasn't showing them anything. He wasn't showing them a miracle. He wasn't showing them anything. He was asking them for their assistance. He was asking them for their help. And this is the first time that he had done that. He said, watch with me. Right? What does watch mean? To be alert. Be alert. So we know what they did, but let's read it. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Those two words are mighty words. And Grieved and distressed, especially the word distressed. It's a Greek word that means to be completely, utterly agitated within. And this is our Savior. This is showing us that the humanity of Christ could be weakened greatly. Not sinning, but it's a weakening. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now when Jesus tells them that he's at the point of death, these guys have been with him for three year, over three years. And they know him well, at least well enough to know that this isn't hyperbole. This isn't Jesus just you know, saying something for shock value or just saying it because it's a phrase. I feel like I'm dying. Like, have you ever said that? I'm sure all of us have said that at some point. We weren't even close to dying, but we just said it. You know, if I, if I don't get this or I don't do that, I'm going to die or something like that. Jesus means it. He didn't waste any words. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. So he says, remain here and keep watch with me. 
And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Now, we also know from the, this gospel, Gospel of Matthew, no, it's in Luke. <clears throat> in Luke's gospel, Jesus, just maybe an hour or two before this, had told Peter that Satan had requested heaven to sift, quote-unquote, sift Peter like wheat. Peter knew this. Peter knew that the kingdom of darkness had selected him particularly to attack, to make suffer. And yet, in spite of that, and in spite of the Lord's words, I'm at the point of death, keep watch with me. It's not enough to keep him awake, nor the other two. Peter, James, and John are sleeping. So, after Jesus wakes them, he entreats them. In verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into, here's our word, it's the same word used by Jesus in the prayer, temptation. That you may not enter into temptation. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And this famous phrase, it's in Matthew and Mark's Gospel. For the flesh, the fl- the, sorry, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This would become famous throughout the world. People say it all the time. They don't, a lot of people don't even know where it comes from. Imagine, this is our Lord's words in Gethsemane, saying to them what? That you need to be alert and you need to pray or else you'll fall into temptation. Now, when he teaches us to pray, he teaches us at this last petition... Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And why are we doing that? Why are we praying that? People want to, you know, get in there, get into the words and say, well, you know, why, why would the Father lead us into temptation anyway? And, and, and argue these things. And it's pointless to argue them. Because, yes, we know that it's not the Father's desire to lead us into temptation. In the book of James, James says the Father tempts no one. He doesn't tempt us, but He does lead us. This is about desire. Do we desire to be led where we're supposed to go? And with that, you know, to be following someone on a very narrow road, which a spiritual life is, that we've got to be alert every day. And who is Satan seeking to devour? Guys like this. Well, they would be. But what I mean is what? The weak, the not alert, the uncaring, the unknowing, the ignorant, they are easy prey for the devil and his kingdom of darkness. So this phrase in verse 41 is significant in our study of the last petition. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Who is Satan after? The weak. The weak are temptable. Very temptable. And as we'll see, Jesus did. (laughs) It's incredible. 
know, trying to wrap my mind around all of this is daunting. And I, I know there's so much more than I know right now. And it, at times it irks me. <laughs> and, I, you know, it probably does to you too that, you know, there's, you see things here and you just, you know, you try to understand everything that's going on here. And it's hard to do. And you've got to, by grace, say, well, you know, over time, I keep plugging, I'll keep learning. So in verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done, your will be done. And he, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came, and it's significant, I pass over it too quickly, that he prayed the same thing three times. You know, people will say of the Lord's Prayer, why am I just repeating the same thing over and over? In a, yeah, you are. But it's the meaning of the petitions that are truly to be repeated. Jesus has covered our entire spiritual life, life in these six petitions. Everything's there. Yes, we can expand upon them greatly, but as a skeleton, as a framework, it's all there. So he prays a third time. And he came to the disciples and said to them, verse 45, Are you still sleeping and taking your rests? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being portrayed in the hand of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, when the soldiers show up and Judas, Peter's awake. Right now, the action starts. They're grabbing the Lord. They're going to arrest him. They've got clubs and swords, and and now he's awake. He, he's awake enough that he's willing to take his sword out and take a shot at somebody. And he cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus tells him to stop. But you see, Peter is awake and ready to go at the wrong time, and he's doing the wrong thing. What he should have been awake is at this time, the time when Jesus said, watch with me. And the same is true for us. There are things that, you know, that are exciting that we do in this world. The battle, so to speak. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is that gets us aroused and we're awake. And Peter does something wrong. And so, we get, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a sinful thing that arouses us. Maybe it arouses our lust or our personal desire or our selfishness and we're aroused to it. But when it comes to prayer, have we all done this? Especially if you're pretty tired after a long day? Or maybe like when I pray, I try to pray first thing in the morning and I'm, I, I pray before I get out of bed. And if it's, you know, if it's early enough, I start praying and then I'm drifting off. <laughs> Or is it God just waiting to listen to all of us just finish our prayers as we're getting sleepy and distracted and so on? And yet, what does he say? Be alert and pray or you'll fall into temptation. See, the Lord's Prayer needs to be prayed alertly. Our prayer lives, everything that we pray for, we need to be alert to. When we're learning God's Word, it's another time that we can easily fall asleep. 
Because it's reading, it's concentration, it's words, it's points, it's principles. You know, what does the world want now? Especially the younger people. They want video, flashing this, color this, picture this. And as you see, I'm adding more pictures to enhance things. But I'm not going to go to, well, you're not going to see a laser show in here. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Right? We could set up a laser show. No, we're not going to do it. You know, there's to a to a point where you can you can do that to enhance the message. But all of us have got to learn to be alert with our minds spiritually, our souls, and our hearts when we need to be, and that is every day. Now, why do we need to be alert? Well, we know it. Right? Where's this from? First Peter five eight. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober, of sober spirit, and be alert. Right? So it's the same thing that Jesus says to them. Pray and be alert. Why? There's an adversary. And who is the adversary looking for? To whom is he successful? In the final petition again, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. It can very, probably should be. My, my Greek textbook says that it should be translated the evil one. My Wallace, it's the, uh, he's the leading Greek authority in the world right now. And every, every uh, university or seminary that's studying uh, Koine Biblical Greek is using his textbook mostly. And he says that in uh, Matthew 6.13, it should be translated the evil one. And it makes sense, you know, as, as I've mentioned several times in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And here in chapter 6, he's saying, lead us uh, away from temptation and deliver us from the evil. Which probably means the devil. Uh, so, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. So the first thing we see here, first and foremost, is that as we're praying this petition, we need to know that there's a purpose to it, that is our alertness to the fact that today, and remember, we live one day at a time, and this prayer is for one day at a time. It's not, it's for every day. Daily give us our bread, right? This prayer is for every day. That in this day, Today, from the time I am awake to the time I go to sleep, that I want to walk the narrow path that leads to life. I want to walk, and I don't mean that in a salvation sense. I mean this newing living way or newness of life that Christ has given me. It's his life. It's his plan. And that's what I want to walk today. And as we've discovered, I don't have to worry about my sustenance, that the Lord is going to give me my daily bread. I don't have to worry about the sins I committed yesterday or even the ones I'm going to commit today because I know I'm forgiven. I don't, I'm not, I have not, because I'm going to walk this narrow path, I don't want to commit sin. I don't plan to commit sin. But I know that I am forgiven. I also know that when others sin against me, I'm not going to get distracted by the plan of God with revenge or bitterness or anger or anything like that. I'm going to forgive them. I've already prayed that. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I have covered that. Now, at the final petition, I am going to walk the narrow road, the righteous way for today. I don't have to worry about tomorrow, but today. All right, so that's the alert part. Then, something else, and this really gets to the first three petitions, that every believer has to remember who they are. By remembering who I am, and what I mean by that is that every believer has died to sin and has been made alive to newness of life. That's Romans 6. Romans 6, 2 and 4. I I plucked out the words from 2 and 4, but it's really the whole chapter of Romans 6. Uh, Paul says, if you've died to sin, if we've died to sin, why should we still live in it? I love his... His argument is right from, he doesn't say, why should we live in sin? Because God's going to smash us. Why should we live in sin? We're going to die. Why should we live in sin? His reason, if we have died to sin through the crucifixion of Christ, why should we still live in it? And it's so beautiful because he's not scaring us. He's not trying to scare us. He's leading us with blessings. If Christ died for your sins and you've been crucified with Him, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, I don't live, yet Christ lives in me. If I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says, if we've died to sin, why should we still live in it? And if we've been raised with Christ, why not walk in newness of life, which He has given us? By grace, through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. So there's two things here. The alertness that we need, why? Because the strong man of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, and John 12. Jesus even called him the God of this world. The strong man prowls about like a roaring lion seeking out the weak. That's one. We need to be alert with prayer. Then, secondly, I need to know who I am. But who am I? How did I become what I am? And this is so upside down to the world that... And and as believers, it's true of me, I'm sure it's true of many of us, we've heard it so much that it's become difficult to see the incredible, uh, what's the word I want to, it's just bizarre. I mean, it is odd as odd can be. We have died, died to sin, crucified with Christ. What has become the main symbol of Christianity? And in fact, some nations, you know, those uh, soldiers of Rome, when Constantine adopted Christianity, he put the symbol on his soldiers. They put it 
during the, those years, and there's a crusades that are involved with that, but they put it on their shields. It's on every church. And it's everywhere in the West. The symbol of Christianity is a cross. And we're very used to this. But <clears throat> if you think about this, the symbol of Christianity is an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of torture that the Romans used to put down rebellion. So if you've seen the movie Spartacus, at the end of the movie, there's hundreds of crosses all along the road called the Appian Way, which was the main road leading into Rome. And there's Spartacus with all his buddies that revolted against the empire. It's historically accurate. It's somewhere in the 40s B.C., I think, that they <coughs> put down this uh, gladiator rebellion and crucified them all. And what this was is if you were walking along and either up on a hill or along the road, if you saw crucified people, that was Rome's billboard to tell you that if you revolt against the empire, this is what you get. And it is the most agonizing, long-lasting torture that had been invented by man. In fact, it's so gruesome that the Romans didn't even really write about it. Though we know we, they crucified tens of thousands of people. When they conquered Jerusalem, they crucified them all. Everybody that they caught as survivors. What was also, <coughs> if it's in a foreign land, if there's hundreds or perhaps thousands of people crucified, where do they get the wood to make the crosses? They cut down the local trees. So not only would you see crosses with people slowly dying on them in absolute agony, but you'd see clear-cut hills. And, you know, when you just see something that's just been cut, I mean, it looks like a disaster, right? So the whole scene, the trees are gone. There's nothing but stumps where there used to be beautiful forests. In other words, life has become death, and you're looking at it. And this becomes the symbol of Christianity, and rightly so. <coughs> How did Jesus set us free? Now, who's the strong man? Is Satan. But as Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew 12, when they accused Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of the devil, he said, look, <clears throat> if I cast out demons in the name of... You know, if I'm casting out demons in the name of the devil, then the devil's kingdom is divided, and no divided kingdom will stand. However, if I'm casting out demons in the name of God, then the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And he said, "No, who can plunder the strong man but someone stronger than him? And what did the Jews want from the Messiah? They saw the Messiah as a military hero that who would swoop down from heaven or wherever they thought he would come from, and that he would uh, conquer and create and establish the nation of Israel as a military leader. But here's this Messiah who's riding on the back of a donkey and giving himself up to death. And not just any death, to crucifixion which upon that cross he would die for the sins of the world. 
So <clears throat> the world has its strength that devour the weak, the strong devour the weak. In Christianity, the whole thing's flipped over. And as who wrote, when I'm weak, I'm strong? Who, who did Jesus say was the greatest among us? And you know the answers to those. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the servant, the young. In other words, the weak. Who said, <clears throat> and right you are, it's Paul. He discovered that when he was weak, he was strong. He had the thorn in his flesh, and he said, this is making me weak. I want it out. He prayed, God, take it out, whatever the thorn was. God said, no. Actually, he didn't say anything. And Paul learned, had to learn a vital lesson, that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Who is Satan trying to devour? The weak. So, how are we now strong as those who are weak? Christ showed us the way. The only way to conquer, the only way to resist the temptation of the devil is to be weak. We say, wait a minute, Pastor, you said when I'm weak, I'm strong. Correct. But where does my strength come from when I know I'm weak? You know who else, you know, whatever uh, a society that built, tried to build a society on the weak crush, sorry, the strong crush the weak, is fascism. Hitler and Nazi Germany were, lived in that principle. Uh, they completely denied anything about Christianity, which had, you know, the rights of the weak, the rights of the poor, uh, that people have rights. Uh, <clears throat> they, they completely removed that and lived in a way that the weak should crush. Sorry, I keep getting it backwards. The strong should crush the weak. It's Nietzsche. It's his philosophy. That, of course, the strong should crush the weak. That's the way it should be. It's like the animal kingdom. But Jesus said, the greatest among you is the weak. So, how does this make us strong. Because if we're strong, when the temptation of the devil comes, we're able to pick up and put on the full armor of God and stand our ground. Just like we studied at the end of Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So I've got to be strong. <clears throat> so we return to the Lord's Prayer, which becomes a nice summary for us. The weak know their complete dependence on the Lord and they worship Him for it. Our Father who is in heaven, petition number one. The, again, the weak know their complete dependence upon the Lord and they worship Him for it. You are my Father. You are holy. You are in heaven. I am none of those things except that you give them to me. Petition one. I worship Him for that. The weak know that their only home could not be made with human hands. It's actually in Hebrews 9. There's a tabernacle in heaven not made with human hands. So again, number two, the weak know that their only home could not be made with human hands. And they thank and worship the builder. Who is the builder? John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. 
That's petition two. Your kingdom come. Number three, the weak know that they are not wise and they adore the wisdom of God. Right? Are we smart? (laughs) If you think you are, you're uh, violating uh, one of the codes of the royal family, which is God didn't call call the smart. So he only called the dumb people. Now, it turns out that everybody's dumb. That's, the, that's what God is getting across. It's only those who think they're smart who that when they're told, you know, you're a sinner and you need a Savior. There's nothing you can do for yourself. You need complete dependence. You need to depend upon, by faith, the work of Jesus Christ for you on the cross. You mean that guy, the guy, the, 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 the good teacher who taught very morally who ended up being crucified by Romans? Really, him? And we say, yeah. That is the vehicle of salvation. To the world, it's weak. That's the wisdom of God. It's actually the wisdom of the Gospel. The weak know that they're not wise, and they adore the wisdom of God. This is why we love the Word of God. We're not smart, but the Word of God is. So if someone asks us, any of us, for advice on anything, what do we think of? Not worldly things. We think of what in the Scripture applies to this situation. And that's the wisdom we give. That's the encouragement we give. To an unbeliever who's struggling, what do do I have for you? I have the Gospel. And that was given to me by God through His Word. I know the way of freedom because God has given it to me. You see, I'm not smart. I'm weak. I'm taking from my Lord who is smart. That's petition number three. Your will be done. And I don't water any of that down on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That wisdom, that kingdom, that Father. That's number three. Number four. The weak know that they're dependent for every need upon the Father. And, getting back to being dumb, the weak know that they're too dumb to know how much of things they should have and what kind. Right? Because what gets us in trouble materially? I want more or I want different stuff than what God has given me. And so I abandon... Uh, the plan of God to try and go get it. And Satan is tempting us in this. You need more. I say, you know what? I have what the Lord has given me today. By the way, I live one day at a time. And as He told me, my Lord, my great Lord told me, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. I'm not worried about it. Oh, but you need to be worried about it. You need to be very concerned about it. I keep seeing uh, some of the articles on the news, this, the webs, the news sites that I I read that the IRS is coming for us this year. They're sending out this list and that list, and they're going to get you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't really care. Let them come. Deb does my taxes anyway, so 
they're coming for, for me through Deb, and I'm sure Deb will do, as she always does, a magnificent job. And thank God for people like that, right? Because we have people who help us. That's where, and that's going to be my, my closing point here, because it's, is it my Father who is in heaven, or is it our Father who is in heaven, right? We know it's our, and we, well, I'm going to get to that before, it. let me finish this. Okay. I'm too dumb to know what kind of things I need and how much. So I just let God do that. Yeah? Seek first His kingdom. That's what I'm after. That's Seek first His kingdom. That's petition number six. But we're not there yet. That was number four. Uh, give us today our daily bread. The weak also know that they're sinners. And the weak know that they commit more sins than they know. So, the weak are humble. Before the Lord, the weak fear the Lord. Not in a sinful way, but in a worshipful way. And they thank the Lord every day that they're forgiven. They know, the weak do, the pain and suffering and hell that Jesus went through to provide that forgiveness. So they worship the Lord for it. They fear the Lord in that I'm not going to take this forgiveness from my Lord that is so precious to me and just run out into the world and sin you know, as, as all I want. I'm tempted to do that. But the love of my Lord and the graciousness of His way prevents me from doing that. So they thank the Lord. Every day they're forgiven through the crucifixion of Christ. That's petition number five. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The second part of petition five, the weak know that those who sin against them are also weak, and I don't put, we don't put, the weak don't put unrealistic expectations on people. They are what they are by the grace of God. They've got a lot of work to do. That's between them and God. Who's going to take vengeance? Not me. God is. You see, the weak know that. I'm not strong enough to take revenge, nor do I want to. Revenge is a loser's game. God will take revenge. And so, that's petition five. I forgive. So that's five petitions, right? All apply to the weak. The weak believer, who because he understands this, who his father is, what his father's done, what the Lord has done, and who I am, that I have put myself in the place of, of strength. Why am I in the place of strength when the first five petitions are true about me? Is because I stand in the sphere of God. I'm in his sphere. When David faces Goliath, right? Famously, what's the battle? It's not David's, it's the Lord's. He's not even going to wear armor. And I always loved how David picked up five stones thinking he was probably going to miss, but he did not. And one of those stones would be about the size of your fist. When David slung it, it would go about 100 miles an hour. And so that's a cannon hitting that big jerk right in the head. Of course he died. But David was like, I might miss, I'll take five. Is David perfect? No. (laughs) Right? But the Lord is. David had to take two shots, he had to take two shots, but he didn't. 
So what is why are the weak strong? When they when these five petitions are true about them, they're worshipful, trusting, obedient, and worshipful. I, I say, you know, this in through and through it all, we adore the Lord for it, for what He's given us. We stand in the sphere of the Trinity, the omnipotent God. And Satan schemes to draw us out of that sphere. That's the place he's trying to get us out of. Uh, it's called Narrow Road, the New and Living Way, Romans 6, the newness of life. Right? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's the road too. Run the race that is set before you. That's the road. That road is the sphere of the omnipotence of God. We stand in that. It's the armor of God. Right? Remember what the armor is. Righteousness. Truth. It's salvation. It's the Gospel. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God. Now, can Satan move you from this place? He cannot. The Spirit of God. Can Satan push you out? Like two sumos in the ring, right? You lose, you lose the points when you get pushed out of the ring. Uh, no, he cannot push us out. He can only tempt us out. And listen carefully now because this is important. Satan has used his genius and understanding of each one of us. I emphasize each one of us because what's going to tempt you in more, you know, there's subtle ways in which you're tempted differently than I am. We might be tempted in the same areas, but because we're different, the subtleties of what's going to draw us is going to be slightly different. God allows Satan and his demonic army to create environments in which we live that tempt us. He doesn't, God does not tempt. That's clear in the book of James. God does not tempt anyone. But Satan has used his genius and understanding of each one of us. He understands us. He knows how humans work and he knows how you work. Especially if you're a faithful believer who's following him, his eye is on you. Now, is Satan in your bedroom staring at you, looking at you all day? I'm sure he's not. And, but who cares? Even if he is, the hell with him. <laughs> right? He's defeated. But he's got demonic stuff, people, uh, demons, fallen angels watching everywhere. In the Bible, they're called the myriad, which is a lot. So there's a lot of them. Prince of the power of the air, right? We saw in Ephesians 6 that it's the, the principalities and powers that are in the air, that are on the earth and in the air, and they're of darkness. And they move around back and forth in the sphere of the world and try and get us into the sphere of flesh and sin. And they use situations. They use things. So you say, what? You know, why am I every day so tempted by this and tempted by that? And when I think then I've gotten over this weakness, all of a sudden something pops up or something comes up or somebody says something or I see something on TV or there's a situation that brings it to my memory and I get tempted again. That is the kingdom of darkness. And you don't have to get wigged out about that. You're never going to see them. They're invisible. But we know that they're working. They're working overtime. That's the last petition. Again, Satan can't move us himself, but he can create an environment in which he can catalyze 
uh, you know, uh, I'm thinking of an enzyme. You know how an enzyme in the body helps reactions go easier and quicker? Uh, we need them in our bodies. And an enzyme is a chemical that if two chemicals are going to get together and make a product, this enzyme gets them together quicker and easier. And so the product is made faster and easier with less energy. It's a perfect depiction of a temptation that Satan puts upon us. A situation where, as James says, there's lust and desire, and they get together, they create sin. Satan's putting enzymes around us to try and get those together easier and quicker. Now, Paul writes at the end of Romans that... You're in Matthew. I'll just read it for you. Paul writes, Romans 16, 19 and 20. Paul writes, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Alright, so that's important, right? This gets to the whole, it's a very simple way of summarizing us in our wisdom and our behavior, which the first five petitions touch upon. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Right? What a great promise. The God of peace, right? not the God of war, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Soon. So that's what we always say to God. In this season of The Chosen, they're, they're pressing on that word because they keep asking, the disciples in the show keep asking Jesus when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen, and he always tells them soon. And, and they, they learn that they don't know what soon means. Like, what is soon? Is it tomorrow or is it ten years from now? Like, when does soon mean? Depends on your perspective of time. If to God a thousand years is a day, you know, soon could mean a lot of things. But what we know is, that God is going to do this. So on our end, are we to go out and you know fight Satan, or as some have in the past, I'm sure they still do. We're going to bind Satan. Uh, we're going to over, you know overpower him somehow. We're not to fight with him at all. As Paul says here, I want you to be wise in what is good, and innocent in what is evil. Satan is constantly trying to ruin in your mind and mine the precious truth about us being crucified with Christ and raised with Christ. And all that means. It means so much. And Satan is trying to ruin it. That we don't see ourselves the way that God wants us to see ourselves, which is a reality of who we are in Christ. And he doesn't want us to be alert. Because... Who is Satan going to really overcome? The weak and the sleepy. Sleepy spiritually, I mean. All of us get sleepy physically. Okay, so one last thing here, and I'll try and tie it together with this. And and believe me, this will go very quickly in a few minutes. Is that if you turn to Matthew 6, go back to Matthew 6, just to the prayer. We'll look at it one last time. I looked all over, I went all over the New Testament today looking at all the places where temptation is used and I found just just so many wonderful scriptures. If we were doing a doctrine of temptation, we could 
we would be happily studying for weeks. Passage after passage. Where, you know, we're pointed out in the New Testament that our marriages are going to be tempted. That's there. That our faith is going to be tempted. That's there. Parable of the sower. The Word of God in us is going to be tested. You know, do you really believe what you believe? So what's going to, what is God going to allow Satan to do? He's going to bring upon you problems. Right? Remember in the parable of the sower, there's the thorns and the thistles that come in and what do they do? They choke the Word of God. And what are they? They're the problems of life. And God's going to allow problems to come in where for you to maintain your peace, you're going to have to apply what the Word of God says by faith. And so that's going to be tested. Like I said, your marriages, uh, your, your flesh is going to be tested. I'm trying to think of the many various, various things. As Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, when you go through these trials, your your you're going to, God's going to prove to you what your faith really is. And so God allows Satan to do stuff, and he doesn't tempt us. He allows Satan to do it. And when we go through it, God says, look, or Peter says, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold, Peter writes. James writes, be joyful that you go through various trials because these trials produce perseverance in you. And when, as James writes, when you have perseverance, you're going to gain spiritual maturity. Imagine what life is as spiritually mature. Wonderful. So it depends on how we look at trials, which depends on how we pray this prayer. And, of course, how we study God's Word. And as we'll see in our next topic, how we rely upon God the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a lot to do. Um, so in... Uh, the, the last thing I want to close with here is others. And we pray, and a lot of emphasis lately has been praying for ourselves, our relationship with God, as the Lord's Prayer points out. But what we have in the Lord's Prayer are... Come in. There you are. We have our Father, our daily bread, our debts, our debtors, and lead us. All of them are pronouns that in this passage Jesus uses because in Greek you could use the verb in the first person plural and you don't need a pronoun. You actually don't need them in Greek. The verb itself is in the first person plural. You can see that by the ending of the verb. And so, you know, you don't need them. You could just, but what the Lord does is say the pronoun. Right? Just like we do in English, we have to write out the pronoun. Uh, and he says the pronoun. Uh, our Father. And then your kingdom come and your will be done are all in reference to our Father. And then give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's plural. So, when you pray, whether you uh, do it, it, you know, it depends. Because you pray for you and you pray for others. Pray about you in seeking this relationship with God and seeing what you need to overcome, what you need to improve upon, what you need to strengthen, finding God's way to do that. That's all in prayer 
and in study, of course, but we're focusing on prayer. But when I say or pray, Father, holy be your name, I'm challenged with my own desire to see and adore God. But it's our Father. Who? Now, here's what I'm getting at. When we say, our Father, holy be your name, I'm challenged with, you know, do I desire God's name to be holy in my life? God's name is God's person. Do I desire God's person to be holy in my life? But also what? How about others? Who in your life that you know of is struggling to see God's name as holy? When I'm confronted with the pronoun our, whether in that moment or sometime after, this must force me to think of others. And others that I know who are think who I think are struggling to see and worship God the Father as holy. And that would include believers and unbelievers. I mean, obviously, believer, unbelievers in your life, you would pray for their uh, seeing or hearing the gospel again and again. Those are not bad prayers. It's not that God's going to force them to get saved. We know that. But to pray for the unbelievers in our lives, to have things happen in certain ways that the gospel would be revealed that they might see it in a different way. Those are legit prayers. Uh, but even for believers, so many of our problems as believers would be solved if we just worshiped the Father for who He is. And you know, in other words, got our eyes off ourselves, lost our self-absorption, lost our self-centeredness, even for a little while. While we worship he, him who is holy. Who, what believers in your life do you know who are struggling? And I see in this the our. Our Father. We pray for us and for others. All right, who's struggling with material problems? Give us today, give us our daily bread. Who's struggling with you know, what their, their issue is if they just desired the kingdom of God rather than the things of this world, that they'd, so many problems would be solved. See, when Jesus says us, he's bringing us into the arena with everyone else. And therefore, we pray for others. So much of the plan of God for us in this age, being in the body of Christ, uh, uh fitly put together, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, uh, each member of the body given spiritual gifts. Some are, you know, uh, the, the eye can't say to the, uh, the foot, I have no need of you, that, you know, we are to consider others. So, we learn tonight, as we finish this up, that we've got to be alert, like the three disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane fallen asleep in prayer, We have to be alert and watching. But not only for ourselves, alert for others. Uh, Paul Paul says in Ephesians 6, constantly pray for the saints. So we're alert for others. What else? We've got to know who we are in Christ Jesus so that we stand strong in these first five petitions. We know who we are. We know who God is. But also we desire for others that we know, that are in our lives, to know who they are and to desire the Father 
more than they desire themselves. To know what it is to be weak and crucified to be weak so that they're strong, standing in the sphere of the Trinity. And so it's not just us, it's others. And that would you know, make our, our prayer lives so effective and so fruitful for us and for others. And I, one of the great things that if you see, and I, I know I'm going over a little bit here, but there was, uh, it was Oswald Sanders wrote a book on Christian leadership. He talked about prayer and <clears throat> he said, <clears throat> um, I remember this distinctly because I, I applied it. And um, he said, there are people when you go when you go to God in prayer, you might find at times that there are people that keep coming up. It's not intentional, not because you're reading them off a list, which is fine to do, but that there's they just keep being put on your heart. This same person. And so he said, in his opinion, that was God, the Holy Spirit doing that. So pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. And at the time, there was someone put on my heart. I did not tell the person this. I've not told anybody this. Maybe I told Chris, but she sworn to secrecy too. And I prayed for this person. And I saw, you know, not because, you know, it wasn't because uh, I prayed for him. It just, I saw it work. I saw this person's life change in a, in a very good way. You know, the very thing I was praying for. And as uh, as Dr. Uh, Sanders said, uh, not Colonel Sanders, <laughs> Oswald Sanders, that <clears throat> he said it's God's way of showing you that prayer really works. See, if God throws somebody on your heart again and again and again, and you say, all right, fine, Lord, I'll pray for him, I pray for him, I pray for him, and then you see God do something in their lives, you say, wow, this really works. And it could be a way that God is showing you. That prayer works. If we if we only pray for ourselves and don't pray for others, right? We won't see that. We won't ever see that. And but what reward in prayer that when you're praying for someone and you don't even tell them, and that you see things work in the way that you've prayed? What a reward that you participated with the Lord in helping a, a royal family member. There's nothing greater than that. Okay, now I'm done. Let's pray. <clears throat> thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the guidance that you've provided for us in prayer. I pray, Father, that what all that we've learned in praying the Psalms and praying uh, where you've taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer and seeking you in prayer and the various things that we've touched upon in this m- multiple months of learning this, that all of us would have much greater and rewarding prayer lives, that we would really put these principles into action so that we would see the importance of prayer in the Christian life. I pray that earnestly for all of us. And I ask, Father, this in Christ's name. Amen.